Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are Board on the Air, The Tabletop Bellhop, Mr. Rao Branson Reviews, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon. Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please remember to take the time to check out the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And, like I always say, sit back and enjoy. Hey. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board on the Air, a weekly podcast and radio show in Saskatoon. And this is What Have You Been Playing? On tonight's show, we are going to talk about villagers. It is... I don't know exactly the player count. Is it two to four or... It's two to four is what it plays best at, I believe. I don't think... I don't think you can play more than that. Uh, Maybe five. Maybe five or six or seven. But no, <laughs> not seven, <laughs> not seven, but it's a nice, small, quick game. It, the whole point of the game is you start off with six cards in your hand. There's an auction thing of six cards, drafting, drafting thing of six cards that everyone can see. And on your turn, you're going to, everyone's going to start off with drafting phase. And in the first turn, everyone can draft two cards. You draft one, flip a new card to replace it. You do that till everyone has all their cards drafted. Then they get added to their hand, and then you get to play two cards. You can do a free action to get rid of a card from your hand back to a draw pile to get any of the first three basic jobs, basically. The basic villagers, your miner, your farmer, your woodcutter. Yep. You put them out on the board, and then you can play two cards from your hand first turn. You play them down, and then that's that's all you do, basically. Yeah, it's... It's card drafting, and your goal is to get money, which is victory points, and you're building chains or tech trees. Uh, So the three base cards can each hold two chains off of them. Some chains are two cards, some are three cards, some are four cards long. Uh, The longer the chain, the more prosperous that chain. it's a very simple game to understand. There are some special cards, of course, which break some rules and that type of idea, which just add a little bit of flair to it. And there was a Kickstarter pack that uh, we haven't played with, but looks like it just adds more variety. Yeah. And they just went through a second Kickstarter, which adds a second expansion, which brings in seasons. So fall, spring, summer, and winter. Or as Saskatchewan likes to say... Winter, winter, spring. second winter, third winter, fourth winter, and now fifth winter. And then summer. Sort of spring, a little bit of summer, and then fall. 
It, this is a simple game that anybody can play, in my opinion. Uh, it's quick to teach, takes about 45 minutes to play and teach, and is really fun, has enough for the gamer of the group, and enough for, you know, the beginner player. Yeah, like, you're never going to be stuck on your decision, like, oh, what am I... What action am I going to do? What am I going to do here? It's like you're either you're taking cards and then you're playing cards. So you're like, okay, so I have this card. I need to have the miner to be able to put this card out. Okay, get the get rid of card. Get the miner. Put the guy on it. Yeah, that's the most complicated decision making you're going to have to do in this game. Yeah, and you're you're building a little bit of an engine in that you can put cards down that let you draft more cards and put cards down that let you play more cards, uh, but. At its soul, you're going to score twice, uh, and that gets delayed a little bit if you're putting more cards onto the pile that has the score card at the bottom, and then you score again at the end, and then there's some bonus points, and whoever has the most points wins. Yeah. Yeah. It, simple, fun, minimalistic art, uh, white cards with, you know... A character. A character on the on the front, and they're all, you know, your, your basic primary colors. There's nothing, you know gorgeous about this but they're solid yeah yeah and you look at the card you're like oh that is a glass blower it's not oh this i think is a glass blower yeah <laughs> yeah everything's got words and pictures on it uh that is villagers i'm david and i'm jordan and we will talk to you next week <laughs>
Now, after Charterstone, we played a round, another round of Founders of Teotihuacan. Um, this was at least the second play for everyone at the table, so it made for a much more enjoyable experience than our previous plays. Um, I'm still loving the action selection bidding system in the game, and I've been enjoying trying different strategies, trying to just build up the pyramid and score temples, or try to um, just score lots and lots of the god tiles, like get lots of blue, blue and red tiles and score them as quickly as possible and as often as possible or just using gold instead of other resources and so on. And I guess it's been really enjoyable to try different strategies and see that they all do seem pretty valid. Now, I do still have to say, in regards to this game in particular, seeing as it's a follow-up to Teotihuacan City of the Gods, I will admit, I would rather play Teotihuacan City of the Gods. Now, the thing is, that's a three, two to four hour game, depending on who you're playing with. So I do enjoy that I can get a game of Founders done in a much shorter time, like an hour, hour and a half a game. Now, my wife, on the other hand, despite winning almost every game we played, hasn't been enjoying Founders as much as I have. To her, it's an okay game. It's all right, but it's not something she's going to pick out to play on game night, which fair enough. I'm still looking at getting a couple more plays in. Um, I think there's a solo set of rules, so I want to try those before I get a final review. That may be coming next week or the week after. Now, the last game we got to the table this past week was... The Goonies Escape with One-Eyed Willie's Rich Stuff, a Coded Chronicles game, which we finally finished on Sunday. Now, since this is an escape room in a box-style game, I really don't want to spoil anything. Uh, Charterstone, I think people have shared pictures and some of the info's kind of out there, whereas this kind of game, you definitely don't want anything spoiled. So I just want to mention two things. One, use the clues. Use the starter clues. There, there are three levels of clues in this game. You don't get penalized for using the first level. Honestly, I think some of them are needed to solve the puzzles. There, there was a particular puzzle that there, I don't think any of us at the table, and we were playing with five of us, would have figured out without using that first clue. Now, these first clues don't spoil anything. They just present useful information to make sure you're thinking about things the right way. Finally, be warned that Chapter 2 is rather short. So we split our, our campaign, our, our play of this game, over three settings. There's three chapters. We played one chapter a night over the last few weeks on Sundays. Chapter one's fairly long. Chapter two was over and done with pretty quick. It ended up being a, a short night for us. Chapter three, though, which is what we finished Sunday, is very long. Well, very long in comparison to the other two. It wasn't a huge long game night, not like three hours or anything, but it did take us longer to do than any of the other two chapters, which we ended up going later than we wanted to. So make sure you've got plenty of time during that last session of play to get it done. Now, for us, we ended up keeping up the kids way later, way past their bedtime to finish up, which probably wasn't the best choice. And I will honestly say I can't see any group sitting down and playing this from start to finish in one session. Like, you're going to need a dedicated game day for that. Not that it's a hugely long game, but I do recommend saving. The saving system of the game is, is very well done. It works really well, and it makes sure you're all ready to go when you start to play the next time. Now, for a full review of this Goonies board game, Escape Room game from the op, be sure to join me for tonight's recording of the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, which of course goes live at 9 p.m. on Twitch. Now, while I'm saving my final thoughts for that show, I will say here that this is so far the most polished Coded Chronicles game so far, with none of the problems that showed up in the earlier versions. This was better playtested. You can tell it had been playtested more. It had gone through more iterations. It was better edited. I didn't see any spelling or grammar errors, and more importantly, nowhere pointed to the wrong places or there weren't missing entries or anything like that. It was honestly a joy to play through, and there were no real problems. Though I gotta admit, a couple things were a little fiddly, but 
everything was so much better than the previous Code of Chronicles games. I'm glad to see this series of games on the right track. And I look forward to whatever comes next. But that's all I've got for this week. Before I go, a reminder, visit TabletopBellhop.com. Join us Wednesdays at Twitch, 9 p.m. Eastern, for our recording of the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. That podcast you can find on your podcatcher of choice if you can't join us live. And I also invite you to watch YouTube on Sundays as Sean and I often get together for a unscripted hangout, which we like to call Sunday Brunch with the Bellhop. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzno, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good night and game on. Hey folks, Ryan here from Mr. Rouse Gaming Brands and Reviews, and welcome to another week of What You've Been Playing Wednesday, where this week we'll be chatting about a little game called Mountains Out of Molehills, designed by Patrick Marino and Jim DiCamello, illustrated by Elena Muntz, and published in 2022 by The Yop. Moles have traveled from all over to compete in the annual Mountain Maker Tournament. Competitors show their skill based on how high they can pile their molehills and by how many mountains they control. The mole that can build the and control the most mountains made out of molehills over six rounds will be declared the top tunneler and will win the game. Mountains Out of Molehills seems to have everything to introduce families to a whack load of gaming mechanics. There's drafting, action programming, and a whole lot of take that if the game decides to go in that direction. First off, the components and table presence of this game is out of this world. This is one of those games where the board is a 3D structure of two boards placed on top of one another, separated by four pillars in the corners. The molehill pieces are nice plastic pieces that satisfyingly fit together for stacking, and the acrylic standees for the mole characters are top-notch. I'm starting to become a huge fan of the acrylic standee instead of the massive plastic miniatures. One thing we are going to upgrade on our own, though, is to replace that flat cardboard rock token with probably an actual rock from our garden. The game is played over six rounds, where each round is broken into three phases, essentially. First, there is the card drafting. Five cards per player are laid out on the table, and then players take turns drafting one card at a time until all the players have four cards. Next, there is the planning phase. You see, those cards that were just drafted dictate how players' moles are going to move this round. Some go straight, turn left, turn right, U-turn, while some move the rock and some knock over the other molehills above the ground. But here's the trick. The players have to decide the order in which those cards are going to activate. A sort of action programming element, because these moles can't see too well in the dark. That's the chaos of the game, much like a game like Colt Express, if you know that reference. As these moles are moving through the underground, above ground, molehills are being formed, and the more molehills created means, well, you guessed it, more points. Which leads into the scoring phase. Players will look to see if they, quote-unquote, control certain molehills, and control here means you were the last one to add to the molehill, meaning your player color is on the bottom of that molehill. Each of these molehills a player controls will score one point per piece part of that molehill. Record these scores and move on to the next round. And nothing resets. All those mighty molehills are now ripe for the taking in the next round. Wash, rinse, and repeat for six rounds to determine the top tunneler of the Mountain Maker Tournament.
Mountains out of molehills is family fun through and through. Casual gamers will enjoy it for what it is, and but I will have a feeling for more experienced players that the game will become quite repetitive after a handful of plays. Even though the game is dictated by which movement cards come out to draft every round, there isn't a lot of variety in the types of cards drafted. We've had two-player games where, almost, where amongst the ten cards to draft from, only a couple cards actually helped us actually do anything. It's actually quite frustrating. The toppling mechanic is neat and can allow players to sneak away a few points from players. I just kind of feel the max height of a molehill each round was eh, kind of meh, and it deterred us away from actually drafting toppling cards. Those cards among almost never got drafted with us, so that might dictate more of our playstyle, actually. We also feel that the game lasts probably about one round too long, as most of the time it's clear who's going to win this game after about five rounds. Overall, my family has been enjoying Mountains Out of Molehills quite a bit. We do really enjoy the getting in other moles' ways and being very passive-aggressive with one another. It's a sneaky, mean game under the cute presentation. And that's what I've been playing this week. Be sure to check out my full overview, thoughts, and review of Mountains Out of Molehills over on my YouTube channel. Just search up Mr. Rouse Gaming Rants and Reviews. Also, if you'd like, follow my gaming adventures on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search up at Mr. Rao Gaming. Okay, folks, enjoy the rest of What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. Hello, this is Alex from MeepleInTheMoose.com. And I'm here to talk about the games I've played for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week was a very busy week for me, so I'm going to launch right into it. I have a lot of games to talk about. And biggest game I played this week was Ark Nova by designer, by designer Mathis Wiggy and published by Capstone Games uh, in 2021. It was released only late last year, but it's already rocketing up the BGG Top 100 list, already at number 35 at the time of this recording. It'll probably be higher by the time you hear this. In Ark Nova, players are tasked with growing a zoo. The winner will be the player who best increases their attraction while also contributing to various ecological goals. The gameplay of Ark Nova is run by five action cards. They're pretty straightforward. The, ac the animals action lets you play animals. The build action lets you play buildings. The cards action lets you draw more cards. The assistance action lets you draw or lets you play more assistance. And the sponsor action lets you take an action from a sideboard. While that all may seem very straightforward, the Tasmanian Devil is in the details. Ark Nova has a lot of details. This is not a light game. It took us about four hours to learn and play a four-player game for the first time. But I could definitely see that time being reduced on subsequent plays. Each of the actions are important and situationally powerful. Below your zoo, each of your action cards will sit in a queue. When you use an action, you will get a power based on where in the queue that action is and then move that action to the back of the line. Ideally, you'll want to be using the strongest action the most often, but sometimes you'll find yourself playing a subpar strength action simply because it's the one that you need to play. All of us enjoyed Ark Nova and we agree that we would play it again, but I do have some qualms, about the, especially about the randomness of the deck and how handcuffed I felt at the end of the game. I needed to get a level five sponsorship, sponsorship action out in order to get some ecological goals and be even competitively viable at the, in the end game. 
but I simply wasn't able to do so. There wasn't enough time. Another player complained that throughout the whole game, he never got a single bird card into his hand, which one of the variable goals was to play a number of bird cards, so it's extra frustrating when you never see one come through your hand. Arc Nova has garnered a lot of comparisons to Terraform Mars, and I can see why. The potential for triggering great combos exists, with effects triggering other effects that could let you run up tracks, triggering other effects, and leaving everyone in the dust. One neat aspect to Arc Nova is that the end of the game is triggered when your two scoring trackers, the Conservation and the Appeal, meet. Your final score is the delta between these two tokens. This is cool, but has a byproduct of leaving anyone who doesn't manage to get their tokens to meet with a negative final score and a bad taste in their mouth. I'll be returning to Arc Nova soon, as I suspect some mastery of the systems will smooth out some of these criticisms. On Saturday, a friend came over and we played a bunch of games together. We played Cribbage, uh, the four-player variant, which I had never played before. Cribbage is an age-old game published in 1630, according to Board Game Geek. The goal of Cribbage is to get to 121 points first. You know, it feels like everyone in the grandmother has played it, but I know I have never played the four-player version of, of this game. The four-player version plays a lot like the two-player version. The main difference being that you play in teams of two, and each player receives five cards into their hand and only discards one into the crib. Play continues around and around the table clockwise as, as you would expect. And while this may be a subtle rule change and difference, ended up feeling fairly significant. A lot of my tempo considerations and strategies felt like they just weren't effective in a four-player game. Playing four-player cribbage was fine, especially because one of the people who were playing had to leave very shortly, so it was a great quick game. But in the future, I don't think I'll be so keen to return to it. Maybe it's just because I'm so comfortable with the two-player experience, but I'd rather find a, a fast four-player game that I actually enjoy more. The next game we played was Cacao by Phil Walker Harding. Cacao is a quick tile-laying game about harvesting and selling cacao fruits. On your turn, you place one of your village tiles adjacent to a jungle tile in the center of a shared tableau. If two worker tiles are adjacent to an empty space, you get to place a new jungle tile. Each of your village tiles will have workers depicted along the edges of, edges of the tile, and every jungle tile will have an action associated on it or depicted on it. The number of workers on your tile would dictate how many times you can take the action of the jungle tile. Now, I love cacao, especially the way the checkerboard of tiles looks at the end of the game. It's straightforward, it's friendly, and I've had success playing this with gamers and non-gamers alike. Everyone seems to enjoy cacao. The theme of building a village in the jungle and harvesting cacao fruits is fairly weak, but that's fine. Mechanically, it's very solid and a great next step game from, from other tile lane games such as Carcassonne. If you haven't played it before, I highly suggest you give it a try. After that, another person left the game table and we were left with just the two of us. We played a couple two-player games back to back to back to back. The first two-player game we played was Abstract Academy by Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankowitz, uh, the same group who brought out Point Salad. Abstract Academy is a card game for two or four players where you're, where you're playing paint cards to a shared tableau in the center of the board or center of the table. Once a 4x4 four four grid of cards is complete, the scoring objectives for the round will be evaluated, three rounds and a lot of scoring objectives to chase, and the player with the highest score is the winner. Abstract Academy was a little more complex than I had anticipated. Playing the game was fairly straightforward, but playing well seemed to elude me. As you play cards from your hand into the center of the table, the 4x4 the four four grid isn't 
set until the X and Y axis are complete, until you have four cards across and four cards up and down. Meaning that a card I played that I expected to be part of my scoring, my opponent could play a card closer towards me and push the overall canvas closer to him. Um, it was quite the challenge and it requires the level of abstract thinking that I just wasn't able to visualize in my first play. I enjoyed the game. I'm looking forward to playing more soon and taking a deeper look into this abstract game. After Abstract Academy, we played Crokinole, which is just a fun dexterity game. It's kind of funny because you can forget that board games are supposed to be fun. That, you know, you get so wrapped up in playing a complex game with a lot of moving parts like Ark Nova and trying to maximize which animal, which tag you need, what animal you want to play and, and amass just three more points in order to get the edge over your opponents. But Crokinole, you're just flicking discs at your opponent and hoping that you can sink your puck into the center of the table. This game was mildly frustrating as every single time I was able to, to sink my puck in the center of the, the board to get that 20 point win, my opponent would immediately do the exact same thing, canceling out my victories. I think I'm gonna have to spend the next couple nights just practice, practicing my flicking. Maybe do some fingertip push-ups for those moments where I need that shotgun power to clear two or three tokens from the board in one go. After Crokinole, we went to Jaipur by Sebastian Pouchon. Jaipur was one of the first games I ever purchased when my wife and I were getting into board games, and I had somewhat forgotten about this fact until I opened the game box and pulled out the well-loved deck of cards. While I hadn't played the physical version of Jaipur since 2018, I do routinely play on Board Game Arena. Luckily, I don't need to play the physical version to remember what a great game Jaipur is. I love the tension of trading cards from the market and the push and pull of either selling goods early to get the highest value versus amassing five goods to get those very high value bonus tokens. It's fast and fun to play, so much so that three games fly by in the blink of an eye. If you haven't had a chance to play Jaipur, I highly suggest you do. And the last game we played was Seven Wonders Duel by Antoine Boza and Bruno Catala. Seven Wonders Duel is the two player variant to the massively popular Seven Wonders game. Seven Wonders changes the formula by building out this large tableau of cards between the two players and then players alternate taking one of those cards into their own civilization. The cards will represent resources, military might, economy, science, and culture. There's a couple of different ways to win in Seven Wonders Duel. You can win a scientific victory by getting six different science icons. You can win via a military victory by pushing the military token all the way towards your opponent's side of the board. And if neither of those two endgame triggers happen, then the person with the highest score come the end of the third age is the winner. Seven Wonders Duel is a game that I played a lot, like 30 something times with my wife. And that's before we picked up the Pantheon expansion. Personally, I like Seven Wonders Duel more than the base Seven Wonders game. And that might be blasphemy for some, but hey, that's just how I feel. I really love the back and forth play. I love how dynamic it is. And I love how I can play this game 30 times over and still not be bored of it. I always feel like I have a great handle on my civilization, but somewhere near the end of age two, I realized I forgot to build any wood tokens and I'm just hosed for age three. Regardless, I have a good time every time I play. In an effort to keep this segment under an hour and a half, I went through these seven games very quickly. If you're interested to hear more about my thoughts of each of these games, most of them have full reviews on my website, meepleinthemoose.com, and many of them I've summarized in my top 100 games of as of 2020. If you're interested to hear about more what I've said, you can check out my you can check out my website, meepleinthemoose.com, or follow me 
on Twitter at Moose Meeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. This week we have two games to talk about. Uh, what's the first game we're going to talk about, Anna Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Ghosts of Christmas. This one is designed by Taiki Shinzawa, art by Maria Surdikan and Misaho Sugawara, and published by Board Game Tables. Yes. Ghosts of Christmas? That's what it's yes, called? Yes, Ghosts yeah. of Christmas. Um, okay. So, go- Ghosts of Christmas. This game, the theme of this game revolves around the three spirits from a christmas carol christmas carol yes and that's the ghost of christmas past future and present you always do that it's past present future i mean yes they're all the same but like <laughs> whatever go in order yes. what did i say past future present future, present yeah okay um so this is a trick-taking game mm-hmm. <laughs> revolving around a christmas theme it's as strange as it sounds but we're gonna we're gonna explain to you. Anna Marie is gonna explain to you roughly how this works because uh, she has it wrapped around her head better than I do. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. I'll interject here. But so, what is it? How does it work? Just like a normal deck of cards, you've got four suits. These ones all one to twelve. So you got blue, yellow, green, and red. Um, red is the trump suit. Get that off right, right. from the bat. Yeah. Um, once you get dealt your cards, you take a look at them. And there was cards one to. 12? 1 to 12 in each color. Yeah. Of each color, right. Yeah. Yep. And so once you get them dealt, you look at them and you decide right then and there how many tricks you think you're going to get. And so... <laughs> Which is no easy task. Yeah. Um, because you have to... You're wagering on yourself of how many tricks you're going to take because you're going to have to take... You're going to have a chance to take a lot of tricks, but you have to try and nail exactly how amount. many you are going to take through this game yeah and it is incredibly difficult to predict yeah so i can take say three tokens because i think i'm going to get three tricks right. if i get those exact three tricks i'm going to double my points and get six points right it, i could also take my little three uh tokens but then a red token which means eh, i might get four so if i get four i would get Still four, get four I would points. get yeah. It would just be the base, but it, yeah, I can never gets get rid doubles. Of the doubling. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So once you've decided how many points you think you're going to get your tricks, right? Then comes the interesting part. <laughs> yes. So they you lay out. Everybody in front of them has three. They kind of fit together like a puzzle. Just three lines: one for the past, one for present, and one for future. And whoever starts the round, they get to decide which card they're going to play in which round um, in which slot first so let's say you started and you put one of your cards down in past you put a green card in the past section so we have three little rondelles that for the first one for the past rondelle we're going to move it to show green so that means that green is the is the suit that everybody has to play to for the past right if you can't if you have to break suit because you can't play it, then you can break suit. But if you have it, you have to play it. So then you've played that. But now on my turn, I don't have to play in the past. I can choose to play a green in the past if I have a green. Yep. Or I can choose to play in the present or the future. 
Now, let's say I really want to win a tr win that tri uh, a trick, but I don't want with a green. Let's say I only have one green card in my hand. Yep. I don't have to play it in the past. No, nope, because you I, could make, say, the present green that's as well right. by placing your, whatever your green card is, into the present. Yes. Now, the present... Rondell thing. Is of the, yeah, the Rondell thing is, is selected to green. And now every card that goes into that slot that's from here the on out suit has for to green. be green. Unless they don't have any green cards. Yes. So it goes around like that until all three suits have been selected. It might happen in the first round or people may decide to follow suits in, in the past or the present. Yep. Um, so maybe you've got green in the past, green in the present and blue in the future. Yep. So you're going to go around um, playing, uh, playing out your hands like this. Now, the interesting part happens um, when you're going to score or, or count, like see who wins the tricks. Let's say you started with green. Yep. Whoever, um, you know, like let's say you had the green five, you put it down. Well, you know what? I had, um, I didn't play it. Our, our third player had a green eight. So they play, you played your green. I didn't have one because I played mine in the next suit yep. uh, or the next column. Somebody else is going to, the third person's going to win that because they had a green eight. Yeah. It's, you're going to go through and you're going to select. Yeah. The highest card is going to win unless there's a red card in there. So. Yes, unless there's a red card, a trump card, the trump would win and the highest trump would win if more yeah. than one was played. But now that that second person has uh, won that trick, um, let's say that 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 person didn't have a green, um, excuse me, in the second column, which is what I had started that that was the suit was green. They didn't have one. So they had so they had to lay, lay a yellow down. Yeah. Well, now that he's he's now starting the next trick. All of a sudden, the next trick is no longer green as Trump, but it's right, yellow because, because he's the one who's leading it exactly, at this be, point. So, yeah, that's so the basics of it is that if you win the first trick, so if you win the past, you will start. You determine. You determine. Yeah, because if, if you were able to play out of the suit in, say, the uh, present and you won the past, now you are starting the present and you actually get to set the. Yeah. The color. So everyone else was playing into the what we thought was because the, that's the how it was started. <laughs> yeah, of, say green, and you you didn't have any green, so you threw a yellow in there. All of a sudden, it's now yellow, and you're going to win the trick because the, everyone else threw in had green. to play green. Yeah, and then you and then if you won the second, you won the uh, second, which is the present. Then you move on to the future, and you would be setting that one as well. Right. So this is a wildly um, difficult game to play and predict on how you are going to win tricks it is so it's interesting insanely cool it's yeah it's, it's so a, awesome and you do this four times you do four rounds i believe yeah. of this and uh whoever has the most points at the end of the game wins so if, for that round if i'd had if i'd said i was going to win four tricks and i did i will get eight points on the board um and if i'd not succeeded or i'd got too many yeah. Get zero. Yeah. Which happened to me. Yep. Several times. <laughs> and yeah, you just do this whole scenario four times. And it's I know it's doesn't it, it doesn't translate super well into <laughs> explaining when it's you don't have this stuff in front of you. But believe us when we say it that this is one of the absolute coolest, greatest oh, trick taking games out there. So cool. And it has a Christmas theme on it, which you would obviously I would play this in June, about. July. September, oh, yeah. It, yeah. Halloween. The, the Christmas doesn't <laughs> doesn't really come through 
per se. I would play it at any time. Oh, it's fantastic. We we played this a couple weeks ago with uh, Chris and Chris and Scott and a whole yeah. bunch of people. But oh my goodness, what a great game. Mind-bending, trick-taking game. It's Needless so to say, fun. we are going to be tracking this one down. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is fantastic. So that is The Ghosts of Christmas. Excellent trick-taking game. Um, if you like trick-taking games, you definitely want this. Um, and the second game we're going to talk about, just quickly, we're going to mention is Meadow. Um, yeah. And Meadow is from from uh, Rebel Studios and Asmodee. Um, and this is a fantastic little game about uh, finding little creatures in the woods and talking about what you saw in the, in the woods around the campfire. But we are not going to go right into this game. We are going to... Uh, be talking about this in full doing a review of it on our podcast this week so you can hear about it on episode 31 of and we've got apple Podcasts working yes it's on apple everything's <laughs> so on apple now so you we've can, had struggles with that yeah. for apparently a long time so find sorry the, the meeple but dungeon, it's there now you can find it everywhere but we're gonna run um yeah check out our next episode we'll be dropping probably on the weekend episode 31 uh we will see you next week cheers see ya Hey there, this is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And as we always do, let's go see what the Bridge City Board Gamers community has been playing. Let's start off with Hands. I'll give you one guess what his first game is. Yeah, Terraforming Mars, uh, Stroganov, Isle of Cats, Tussie Mussy, and Smoothies. I think it's smoothies that I think that might be that uh, in that capstone steer, series of uh, kind of family games, easy to learn. Uh, I've heard, I don't know, I've heard things, um, but I haven't heard a lot. And and I mean, everyone was happy when they talked about it. Uh, Tussie Mussy, that is uh, uh, from uh, Elizabeth Hargraves, who did uh, Wingspan. She created a little eighteen card. Um, uh, um, uh, drafting game, card drafting game is pretty cool. And all the cats, polyominoes, right on. That's a that's a pretty wide range. And of course, that engine builder there uh, referred to as terraforming Mars. Um, let's see, Jeff. Jeff has corrosion. Origins first builders, the Isle of Cats, dominant species. Yeah, <laughs> I could go on for hours about how much I love that game. Uh, Imperial, Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North, Cascadia, Quacks of Quidlinburg, and Cape May. You know, Cape May has drawn interest for a couple reasons. One, it's a solo game uh, of one to four players, but the art and, I don't know, the, that theme kind of just compels me, and I, I, I don't know why. Uh, Origins First Builders, that is, uh, I think it's Board and Dice, the publishers, and they're pretty good at having a solid lineup of uh, designers that represent their label. So wonderful. And Cascadia. I, I, that was, I think my, yeah, no, that was my favorite game from last year. And uh, yeah, what a great game. So yeah, cool. Jeff, well done. Travis, tried Boone Lake last night. I uh, thought it was good. Doesn't quite have the magic of Great Western Trail and Maracaibo. But I definitely play again, and I think it would take a couple more plays to get a better feel and judgment for it. Definitely identified many mistakes I made and things I need to focus more on next time. 
managed a score of 195 for a three-player game. Well done. Uh, others have played before once, so I found a couple of tile actions, didn't get much use, but it could be just our playgroup. Now that I'm take, uh, now that I'm talking about it, I really want to try it again. And you know, that's the funny thing is you pretty much described my entry into the game. Uh, I love Great Western Trail. Maracaibo's fantastic, and I have other titles of his, uh, Blackout Hong Kong, um, and um, the uh, I, I like the way his brain works as far as a designer goes. And I I'm pretty you know what I guarantee. You play it a couple more times, you'll see the, the depth and the interconnectivity of it and how strategic and tactical it can be at the same time, depending on who you're playing with, right? Um, because you can step on the gas and uh, leave people in, in the, like in Maracaibo, you can step on the gas and leave people in the back end not getting enough actions as you did. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I want to play it now. <laughs> Eli. More Cthulhu, Death May Die, Reload, and Monolith Arena. Nice. Monolith Arena is a reinterpretation of Nirishima Hex. So if you like the Nirishima Hex, what a fun game. It's kind of, kind of uh, what did I call it? I made reference to it when I was talking to, to uh, um, uh, Roland Dyson Taken Names, Marty and Tony, that they talked about it and they pitched it for the hype train, and justifiably so that you program all these movements or all these actions in a game, you know, a battle, one-on-one -on -one battle. And then when a certain uh, trigger point happens, it goes in initiative order and you just run the script and watch the mayhem and carnage and chaos take place because some of the program stuff you thought were going to go, uh, somebody might've put an initiative order attack before that and taken that out. So yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's such a fun game. And uh, Monolith Arena takes it and amps it up just one more with that whole idea of a monolith. Dan, Game Club, The Thing Infection at Outbreak 31. Nice. If that's a school game club, ooh, that could be dangerous when you have the hidden traitor because <laughs> a lot of people will hang on to grudges at that age. You know, or at any age. Who am I kidding? <laughs> All right, Tim, a uh, couple of games of Azul, and that's it. And you know what? That's probably uh, enough uh, brain candy to make everybody happy. So well done. Well done. Jonathan, survive Escape from Atlantis a couple times with my six- and four-year-old with quite a bit of help from me. Well, you can help me next time I play that game. Uh, Karuba with the six-year-old and Viscounts. I don't think the kids played Viscounts, but who knows, right? You know, exceptional learners. John, same old, same old. National Pro Hockey and Sentinels of Earth Prime times three. And I think he means he played that three times. So, uh, National Pro Hockey. Man, the, it's, yeah. I, might, I could feel the skates just lacing up. Yeah, I said laces. That's how old I am. Marianne played Kalua. And, and I'm not referring to any beverage uh, escapades. It is. Uh, it looks like a cute little island game of. Uh, uh, looks like there's some meeple. Uh, I'm just trying to interpret what I see for images here. Yeah, it looks like a little meeple island, maybe control thing. Uh, it looks cute. Right on. And uh, well, at at uh, at at my side of the table here, um, I 
I had, I'm going to pump up uh, TuneCon. TuneCon happened, and uh, I had the opportunity to go Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and played a bunch of games. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to talk about a, a, a couple in particular. And uh, what a wonderful event. Thank you so much to the TuneCon organizers for, for uh, trying to get this, this uh, post-COVID reality of board gaming kind of uh, off on its, on its feet. So, yay. And uh, I think everybody had a good time. It wasn't the big crowd that uh, TuneCon's used to, but it was a crowd nonetheless. And, and of course, capped off with the Saturday auction where I believe I was witness to a, uh, an original copy of uh, Battlestar Galactica go for over $300, I think, yes. And then there was another game. I, I can't remember. I'd have to consult. But uh, there was another game that uh, sold for over two fifty. So yay! Well, and then there's a whole bunch of others that sold for a couple bucks. But the uh, there was some unicorn hunting going on, and I and I mean that metaphorically. You know, I don't, I don't prescribe to that kind of that kind of hunting of mythical and imaginary creatures. Uh, so what I had an opportunity to play was um, Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. Uh, their new board game company, Motor City Games, and Adam Hill, sorry Adam, um, they put out Three Sisters, which is the, uh, when I, I had the opportunity to interview Matt Riddle, and is the second in the trilogy of uh, the, the roll and write, and I like to call them cascade point system games, because that's what you're doing, you're wanting things to just get to a point where something triggers something else which cascades into something else which cascades into something else and then you get this beautiful rush in your brain thinking i'm so smart i set that all up to have happen yay um uh well i played two games and then once i because i have the game it's, it's off the shelf of shame now because we played it at TuneCon. and when i got home i played a bunch of solo games and uh, I have Fleet the Dice game, which was the first in this series. And I think they're, uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mispronounce the title, mis, mis, uh, mistitle it. Motor City is the third one. And uh, so the um, Fleet the Dice game started this whole idea of their, their cascade system. And uh, I'm kind of visualizing their, their roll and write tableau, which is two paths. Right? Two different paths that represent a left side and a right side, which is very similar to what they um, kept going in Three Sisters. Uh, before I continue, Three Sisters, thematically speaking, you are gardening. You are growing uh, plants, flowers, vegetables. You have a shed. You have pumpkin patch. Now, how this works is the concept of Three Sisters, me being a history social studies teacher, love it. Uh, from the Great Lakes area, pre-colonization, the, um, the, the, the nations that existed in that area had developed an agricultural style, and, and a, an efficient and sufficient agricultural style referred to as the Three Sisters. And what it is, you start off with corn, which is basically a you know, fundamental uh, crop, but the corn itself has a structure that the bean, which is the second, um, travels up. So now you have 
uh, I mean, you have that whole idea in gardening where, where you're, you're trying to have partnered gardening, but we're not done yet. Three sisters. The third is squash. Uh, and in this case, there's pumpkins. And the squash itself has enough uh, leaf cover that it protects the, the ground cover and, and it helps retain the moisture, helps basically protect that plant. So this synergy of, of these three plants uh, symbiotically working and, and growing together became an agricultural movement that is duplicated and, and replicated through, you know, throughout different spots in the world and throughout civilization. So it's one of those ingenious moments that uh, intelligence uh, is applicable to observations in nature and you, and you come up with this game, which is so cool. I got off on a little lesson. I'm so sorry. I will never do that again. <laughs> I, I just fibbed again. Um, so three sisters, you, yeah, you roll the dice and they've used this time uh, a rondelle. The first fleet was basically you rolled the dice and you picked one and you basically went around and depleted that stock. In this case, similar situation, but it's placed on a rondelle because it represents two tiers of actions. The first action is whatever dice that you pick off this rondelle, the pips, right? Like if I pick up a three, then I'm looking in my garden in the three zone, the third area of my garden, the three zone, and I have to decide to either plant, start two new plants, or to water that area. And uh, so that's what you do, depending on the one to six and where they sit on the rondelle. Now, the second part is the spot where you pick it off the rondelle underneath is another action related to other parts of the board. And most likely, it is the right-hand side of the board or the bottom part of the board where there's perennials and there's so many tracks and there's so many triggers, it would take a, a, a review. Huh, maybe it's going to be reviewed. No, of course, yeah, I'm going to review this one coming up right away. Um, the, there's so many interconnected uh, um, engines or micro-engines or booster packs or whatever you want to call it because the shed itself is where you can start to design these little micro engines that work with what's going on. If you're doing a lot of gardening, then you look in the shed to see, okay, what's going to help me water more? Oh, on a rain, I can do this. And you start to see, you start to see where things plug into each other. And every time that I've played it by, you know, the solo part, I start to recognize how this could pair up or even you know, a group of these might work together in a cycle. Uh, I love watching other people play this when we're at TuneCon. Uh, me watching and learning my board, I was also watching it and, and observing what other players were doing with their uh, choices and learning from what they did. And I, there's some choices that I would have never considered and thought, wow, I can see the potential there. So, yay, that was uh, Three Sisters. We also played Rococo. There's some other games, but Rococo, uh, I, I'm, the more I play this game, the, and I have, just to uh, back up a little bit here, I had the opportunity to pick up a, uh, the, one of the original copies from a Bridge City board game, remember? Thank you, Jason. And um, I, I, yeah, because I, there was a Kickstarter coming up with the, with the big elaborate Eagle Griffin box and the gorgeous Eno O'Toole art and the, and, you know, the, the beefed up components. I was a big fan. I just wanted to play the game to have the gaming experience. I wasn't 
I, I, I wasn't too caught up in the whole whirlwind of the hype of the, of the Kickstarter, so I immediately picked it up. Man, this is... Oh, I, I understand now why a lot of people... Why when this was out of print and a lot of people wanted this, you know, to play this game, it's a great game. Thematically speaking, you are a, uh, a wardrobe maker, a, uh, a dress builder, um, a, you know, a, 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 a pantalon and, and coat builder, and uh, you are dressing the nobles for a party at Versailles, the in the in Louis's court, and uh, it's area control. It's a awesome deck builder. It is uh, so much push pull. There is uh, there is still more for me to discover with this game, but it is easy to pick up and and uh, easy to play and. Maybe difficult to master. I don't know if there's any mastery involved because I'm just having so much fun playing it. So that was, yeah, let's cut that short. <laughs> Impossible. But that was uh, the two games that I wanted to quickly mention uh, that, I, uh, that I got to play this week. And once again, thank you so much, TuneCon, for providing an opportunity like that for the, the hobbyists of this awesome, uh, um, yeah, the hobbyists of this awesome hobby. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for all the energy and all the effort that you guys put in every year to make this happen. And thank you so much for listening all the way to the end here. And uh, thank you always to the contributors who make this episode a reality. And that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? <laughs>